Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss Acts chapter 11. Theopolitan Reading, the latest book from Peter Lightheart in the Theopolis Fundamental series, is now out. We learn to read because we're taught by people who can. We learn to read well because good readers model good reading and guide us as mentors. For Christians reading the Bible, Jesus is the model reader, and we learn to read well by following his example and submitting to the mentors he gives. Reading well is an act of discipleship. For more information about this book and to purchase it, we have a link in the show notes for you. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Acts chapter 11. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is away on a pastoral call. Uh, He was away on a pastoral call last week. This is the same pastoral call. We are going to unveil the inner workings, the background workings of Theopolis by saying that uh, we actually record two podcast episodes at a time. So it's not a week-long pastoral visit that that Jeff is involved with, but it's uh, the same day that we recorded the last the last podcast. Uh, we are in uh, the story of Peter that uh, Peter and Cornelius, particularly. Uh, we have uh, been going through a, a podcast series in the Book of Acts. We looked at the events early on in the book of Acts in uh, the Jerusalem church. Uh, The story moves from Jerusalem and begins to expand out into Samaria and into Judea because of the uh, persecution and the death of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen. And then there's a dispersal. The dispersal is a flight. They're going out of Jerusalem because they want to be safe, but it's also a sowing. The word of God spreads as the people spread. That's what's been going on uh, after chapter 7, where where Stephen's story is told. Uh, Saul's conversion is at the beginning of chapter 9, and then Peter is reintroduced at, toward the end of chapter 9. He does two miracles. Uh, he raises a paralyzed man named Aeneas, and then he raises Tabitha or Dorcas from the dead. We have this pairing that we talked about in the last episode. And then in chapter 10, he encounters Cornelius, uh, a Roman centurion. Uh, and we have this, we're, we're beginning this transition from Judea out into the Gentile world. Uh, in the case of Cornelius, we have a Gentile who is already a God-fearer, who is in Caesarea, which is, in, uh, which is in, within, within Judea. So geographically, we're still in the zone of Judaism. And Cornelius is a, is a Gentile God-fearer with connections to Judaism, but we're expanding out and we have this... Uh, this ripple effect that will eventually go out to uh, the Gentile world proper. We talked last time about the the, the repetition of uh, these chapters, and it, the repetition does have a kind of order to it. Now, chapter 10 begins with Cornelius's vision, which tells him, an angel tells him to go and summon Peter to his home. Uh, simultaneous with that, uh, in the next stage of the story, we have a vision of Peter, who has a vision of a sheet lowered from heaven, full of clean and unclean animals, wild and domestic animals, and he's told to kill and eat. Uh, and then Cornelius's delegation shows up at Peter's house and Peter welcomes them in. So we have vision, vision, and then a visitation 
that ends with uh, a lodging as a In verse 23, Peter invites them into the house and gives them lodging. Uh, And so there's an act of hospitality at the end. And then the the cycle kind of begins again when we have Peter and Cornelius together. Now in Caesarea, Peter has gone to visit Cornelius. Peter gives a speech uh, telling what he's learned from his vision and recounting the the gospel story. Uh, This is Peter's last sermon in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, And then the Holy Spirit falls And uh, Peter recognizes that God is endorsing the Gentiles, and there's this final act of hospitality uh, at Cornelius' house. So we have vision, vision, hospitality. Cornelius recounts his vision, then Peter recounts his vision and the story of the gospel, and then there's hospitality. Uh, And then chapter 11 is going to be occupied with the reaction from Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Uh, So there is a, there is a, a, with all the repetition, there is a, there is a sequence, and the climax of the story is going to be. Uh, how this plays in back home in Jerusalem. And and this is a, the first rumblings of what will be a, one of the major conflicts of the New Testament era, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church. The rumblings of that are already beginning by the time we get to chapter 11. It strikes me as significant here that what God is doing really is creating a need within certain people for contact with the church and with the church community. God could have revealed himself directly and sufficiently to Cornelius. Um, he didn't have to leave Saul blind. He could have spoken to the Ethiopian eunuch sufficiently through Scripture. But in all these cases, it, instead, God creates a need which will put them in touch with the the church. And in, it's almost like uh, just half of the job is done in in a sense. You know, the, the eunuch is struck by Scripture um, but can't understand it on 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 its own or on his own um and so philip needs to come saul sees the lord but he's left blind um and here peter and cornelius they almost have half a vision each and they don't quite understand how they all fit together and it just strikes me as important the way in which that means that there aren't just these disparate communities developing but rather everything is sort of flowing outwards from jerusalem and even at the end of this um chapter we're going to see a, a uh, another centering in Jerusalem by means of of the famine, and and so it, there is the the connection of of the body which is going on, which is significant. I think mm. the fact that it is Peter is probably also a matter to um, take count of. Peter has been set apart in um, from the other apostles in various ways. Whenever we have a list of the apostles, he always comes first. Sometimes he's explicitly declared to be the first um he's presented in a number of narratives as the one who leads the way um in john he's the one who goes into the tomb first he's the one who um jumps into the sea and leads the way there he's the one who goes out on the water towards christ and walks out he's the one who has the um gospel to the circumcision committed to him particularly to him as an individual. He is leading the way there. He's the one who leads the way as the witness of the gospel to the Samaritans. He goes down to Samaria after Philip has witnessed to them. And he's the one also in Matthew 16, of course, who's um, we have Christ saying to him about, um, on this rock I will build my church. The fact that he's described as the apostle to the circumcision the one who has that the gospel to the circumcision committed to him 
we might expect that it would be the apostle to the uncircumcised who leads the way with Cornelius. It might be Paul that's sent to him. But no, it's Peter. And the fact that it's Peter suggests that maybe the important thing that Peter is doing is witnessing as the one who has the gospel to the uns the gospel to the circumcised committed to him that he's witnessing to what god is doing among the gentiles that they are indeed one people and it's not just two separate missions divided from each other but a unified people that right. god is forming right well i think alistair in the last episode you talked uh, some you made the suggestion that there's a, a kind of noachic background here you have a series of encounters with uh, uh the representatives of the different peoples that are descended from Noah. And I, I think the, there's a, the Noahic symbolism of the vision that Peter sees. He sees a sheet coming down out of heaven. James suggested last time that the sheet might be associated with a sail. Uh, but you, this sheet is crowded with all kinds of animals. Uh, you have different categories of animals that are described in verse 12, four-footed animals, crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. And then when Peter describes this later on, he actually uh, uses the talks about wild animals being included in it. I think that's in chapter 11 when he's describing it. A wild beast, crawling creatures, birds of the air. And he gazes into it and sees these this mixing of these animals, which you know that that's a that's a kind of Noah's Ark image too. So you, uh, and I think that points in a couple of different directions. The the emphasis is on what Peter is going to eat. Will he eat uh, food that's uh, considered unclean? But the lesson that he learns is not really about food laws directly. The lesson that he learns, he says, is that God is, does not show partiality and that he has accepted the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that's confirmed when the spirit falls on Cornelius and his household. So there's a, a Noachic a kind of drawing together of all peoples into this Noachic community, this uh, into the Ark of the Church, if we want to use somewhat later imagery. And the food division of clean and unclean is symbolic of the division between Jew and Gentile and also preserves that distinction in a sense because it prevents certain kinds of table fellowship between them. But now that those now that the Jews and Gentiles are coming together and the food the food laws are lapsing, then we have the uh, this uh, possibility for table fellowship again in a kind of renewed Noahic order when uh, before the time before Abraham, before the time when Jews were selected and separated out from the rest of the nations. What do you all make of the comment in verse uh, 28 where Peter is, there's an assembly in Cornelius' house. He's assembled uh, his whole household and he's got his relatives and close friends. So it's uh, what's happening here is the formation of a church, not just a, a Cornelius individually or just Cornelius and his immediate family. And in that context, Peter uh, addressed them and says, you yourselves know it's unlawful for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So that's the, the point of the vision about the animals is about really about people. But what would be the, the basis in the law for that statement that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him? Uh, is, that, is that something that's in the law or is that something that is part of uh, later Jewish tradition and custom? Is Peter wrong to think that he shouldn't associate with Gentiles. It definitely is taught in later Jewish custom. So you can look at the Qumran scrolls or, or Philo even or, or all sorts of rabbinic texts to, to find that. Uh, I can't personally think of a, a legal 
um, like a, a, a biblical law basis for it. Apart from the fact that um, visiting a Gentile might re- involve eating food that um, was not kosher, um, I can't think of anything that would rule it out. Yeah, and James, would, th- would that be the rationale um, for the later Jewish tradition that uh, the you don't know the, s- the circumstances for the food? Would it be particularly about food, t- uh, about table fellowship? You don't know how the mo- food was slaughtered. You might not know if uh, if you're eating, you don't know if the, the food has been tithed. So you might be eating God's God's portion of a harvest, for example, if you don't know that it's been tithed. So is it is that the kind of consideration that would lead the Qumran community to those conclusions? Maybe I'm I'm not familiar enough with it. I mean, even biblically, there does seem to be some um, uh, presupposition that kind of in Gentile lands, you, you just will eat unclean food. So I mean, in uh, Ezekiel four, for instance, when it talks about the North Kingdom going. To into exile um talks about how they will eat their bread unclean among the nations and there's a similar phrase i think either in amos or hosea i can't remember um but there seems to be that expectation um perhaps the idea is that there's there's not even the the right facilities to sort of um to to keep keep the law in those sorts of foreign communities you don't have the temple or or anything like it Mm -hmm. Yeah, your mention of Ezekiel uh, reminds me that when I was going through the passage, I, w- I thought of the scene in Ezekiel where he's told to uh, eat food that's been cooked over dung, and he refuses. Uh, and um, it occurred to me there was a uh, a uh, an analogy with with Peter's reaction to the command to kill and eat, uh, and uh, but I didn't I didn't follow up on that and go back and look at Ezekiel. Any any thoughts on what that connection might might imply? Um, I have obscure chronological thoughts about it. If you're if you're game for them, <laughs> of course. It's what we're for. Well, I mean, I, I need to uh, write some of these up at, at some point. But it seems to me that there in um, Ezekiel there is a, a 390 year period where uh, Israel, so the Northern Kingdom, has um, kind of divorced divorced herself, um, beginning with um, the rebellion led by Absalom, actually, and then continued by, um, I think his name is Bichri, the the Benjamite. Um, Beginning with that rebellion, they have rejected God's appointed authority in Judah as the locus, the lion and and the seat of authority within Israel. And um, that there is a 390 period there that ends basically with Ezekiel's vision, which is when... um, the temp uh, when the spirit leaves the the temple, but there is then a forty year period of Judah's rejection of God's authority, which hasn't hasn't begun at all, um, or, or or it's it's hard to place historically. And um, my sort of speculation, which I'm working on, is that that forty year um, rejection of God's kingship um, begins after the spirit has returned. I guess that there is this hiatus between God abandoning the temple in Ezekiel's day and God coming back to the temple um, in the person of Jesus and that between 30 and 40, uh, between 30 and 70 AD is when Judah's 40-year rejection of God's authority takes place and it comes to its uh, conclusion, I guess, with the destruction of the 
temple. So I th- I think there is a link to Ezekiel um, four, and that would be my best guess hmm. as to what it is. Hmm. Interesting. I'm struck by some of the details in Peter's um, proclamation of the gospel in verse 34 onwards. Um, we get a statement that happens a, a couple of times, actually, is that Peter opened his mouth, which seems slightly unnecessary. We, the same thing is said by Philip um, immediately after the Ethiopian eunuch's um, reading of the uh Isaiah 53, when it's said that Jesus doesn't open his mouth there before Pilate and as he's tried. And, and so um, it strikes me that, that now is the time for preaching and, and for the gospel to go forth. And there are a number of details about um, Peter's presentation of the gospel that seem um, significant to the context, to, to me at least. Um, you know, Jesus Christ is spoken of in verse uh, 36 as um, he who is Lord of all, um, uh, which would be relevant to the, um, I guess particularly to Romans, but to the uh, the, the bigger context mm. of the gospel. The gospel begins in Galilee, which is Galilee of the nations, and Jesus is spoken about as one who goes around um, doing good, which, which kind of resonates with Cornelius's own um, mm. life. But then there there are various other things. I mean, Jesus's death is spoken about in terms of uh end of verse 39 of they put him to death which is the jews in jerusalem um but they, they did so by hanging him on a tree which i guess could hint at roman um roman involvement in the action and, and then it goes on to talk about in verse uh, 41 how um they have been witnesses of, of resurrection who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and and so um, fellowship with the disciples is is broken, I guess, uh, at the moment of the crucifixion. They have abandoned their Lord and 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 denied Him even. And eating and drinking is a very powerful act of the restoration of fellowship with the disciples. And here it then seems relevant that food again becomes an issue, and Jew and Gentile are um, united now. In I don't think eating and drinking is is mentioned explicitly, but it does seem that house fellowship which would include table fellowship right. is, is is there yeah and a couple other things from that uh, sermon that uh, stand out in the light of what you were just saying and the same verse verse 36 where he says he is lord of all uh he says that uh, the word uh which he sent to the sons of israel preaching peace through jesus christ so there's uh think of ephesians 2 and the uh promise of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who brings peace between the Jew and Gentile. So there's a, a particular focus on that. It also occurs to me, verse 39, which you quoted there, there is this pointing to the culp- uh, to, pointing to the culpable ones who put Jesus to death. They put him to death, the Jews. And uh, you realize that this is the first time that Peter has preached a sermon where it's not doesn't end with an accusation. <laughs> Maybe the mm-hmm. first sermon in uh, the book of Acts that doesn't end with an accusation because they've all been preached to Jews. Peter Peter and John constantly do this. They're telling the Jews that they're responsible for putting Jesus to death, and yet the Father has reversed that and has uh, exalted Jesus and given him a name, uh, made him both Lord and Christ. This is what Stephen's sermon, this is the climax of Stephen's sermon, is the accusation that they're the same people who have always rejected the prophets. So here we we finally have a sermon that doesn't have that accusatory 
focus. Although, as you say, there's a the reference to the the tree or and the hanging on the tree uh, does point to to a, a Roman role, but it's the accusation is directed against uh, directed to people who are not present. And the last thing I want to say that the this will come up uh, in some of Paul's preaching too. Verse forty two, he ordered us to preach to the people solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So part of the the good news that the apostles are commissioned to preach is the appointment of Jesus as Lord Christ and judge. Uh, that's what that's the culmination of Paul's sermon and uh, in Athens that uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's uh, there's a day appointed when he will judge all men according to their works. So there's uh, that that note of judgment is uh, is an important part of the gospel preaching. And and maybe particularly to Gentiles, um, I'd have to go back and check this, but um, uh, that that becomes seems to become more prominent as Paul goes out into the Gentile world. Mm. Yeah, that strikes me as, a, as an important point. The earlier emphasis of Peter's sermons is is very much blood gill, isn't it? The blood of Jesus is is on them, and there's a sense almost of imminent. Danger with the Joel two quotation, which I assume refers to the sort of the Roman army in, in the background. But yeah, here it's different, isn't it? It's the lordship of Christ and sort of judgment on a final day seems to be stressed more. And then it's an invitation to come and be part of um, a body rather than to uh, save yourselves from this wicked generation. There's a, a different emphasis to it, isn't there? Mm-hmm. The reference to the post resurrection feasts as you noted was a detail of the sermon that maybe should stand out to us when we think about the celebration of the supper for instance we focus very much upon the allusion back to the last supper but there's also a reference to the joyful post-resurrection meals that are shared with the disciples um, events such as the meal in Emmaus um, and the other meals that are alluded to at least at the beginning of um, the book of Acts it seems to me that those present our celebration of the supper in a slightly different light um, that we're celebrating not just a remembrance of the events leading up to Christ's death but we're having the remembrance of the um, meal that is the symbol of Christ's death as something that has been transformed into a joyful feast and demonstration of his victory after his resurrection. Yeah, good point. I, th- I think that's clear in Hebrews as well, isn't it? There, there is a clear contrast that in Old Testament sacrifices, there is a remembrance of sin. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be any consciousness of, of sin in, in the taking of, of the bread and the wine, but that doesn't seem to be uh, the focus that that remembrance of sin it, it seems to be um as you say more a more joyful occasion that's stressed after after peter uh, finishes his sermon uh, the spirit falls or while he's still speaking actually in verse 44 the spirit falls on cornelius and uh, his household this is one of the uh, a number of pentecostal events scattered throughout the book of acts We've mentioned before that you can trace the progress of the gospel uh, by these Pentecostal experiences. You have the Pentecostal moments. You have the original Pentecost in Jerusalem. You have a, a kind of Samaritan Pentecost with after Philip is preached there, then the apostles come and lay hands 
now you have a Pentecostal event with a Gentile God-fearer in his household. Uh, there'll be a further uh, fall of the Spirit later on with some uh, some other believers, and those are marking out the those are marking out the stages of the the uh, uh, movement and the spread of the gospel. And as Peter says in reaction to it, this is God's own sign that He approves of the Gentiles. Uh, the Spirit is moving out, and in some sense, the Spirit is moving out ahead of where the apostles are. Peter is still reluctant to go and and meet with the Gentile. He he knows the Jews should he thinks the Jews shouldn't associate with Gentiles. But then when the Spirit falls, he says, well, how can we deny baptism? Uh, how can I uh, not lodge with them, which uh, would, uh, would uh, include table fellowship, as we've already mentioned? But it's the Spirit who drives him to that conclusion, and the Spirit is going out, and, and the Spirit is in charge of the mission of the church, and the apostles are witnesses to that Spirit and kind of playing catch up to what the Spirit is doing uh, as he establishes, you know, continues to establish this spirit-filled community, continues to build the spirit-filled temple of God by falling on these different groups. Hmm. Yeah, the, the experience of the spirit is very clearly uh, implied to to be what defines the unity, isn't it? So in verse 47, um, it's that, you know, these people have to be baptized since they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And then it's, it, repeated isn't it um uh, uh somewhere in uh 11 uh, uh chapter uh, chapter 11 verse 15 um th- the spirit fell on them just as on us at, at the beginning so it seems very clear that the spirit yep theologically he's what unites and defines the church but they they recognize the him uh, experientially as well in in seeing the same signs so there is the spirit as the the sort of underlying foundation but also the visible um uh, the visible manifestation of unity in in the church mm-hmm. as we as we move into chapter 11 uh we move into a different phase of the story we we saw this uh i think it was in the last episode when we were talking about the jonah typology that's going on behind this that uh, it's following the story of jonah and part of the part of the analogy is the opposition that arises the concern that arises in Jerusalem after the after these events and and specifically objecting to Peter's uh visit to uncircumcised men and his meals with them verse 3 of chapter 11 that's what the uh the circumcised Christians in Jerusalem are objecting to uh and one of the one of the things that's going on among many other things is the it's an interesting comment on the role of visions and uh, and uh, the spirits prompt things, and the spirits work in uh, in the book of Acts. Peter has seen a vision that has taught him that God shows no partiality, and he should go with the delegation from Cornelius. The spirit prompts him to go, but then he has to testify to that before these assembled brothers in Jerusalem. That there's a there's a kind of corporate approval, a corporate acknowledgement of the validity of what Peter has seen and what he's done. In other words, it's a private experience. Peter's in a trance. Luke says when he receives this vision, it's a private experience, but then that becomes public by Peter's testimony about it, uh, just as Cornelius has this vision of the angel and he speaks about it, uh, and it gets repeated several times through the course of the story. But those those private experiences of the apostles prompted by the Spirit are then brought out before the community and become part part of the life of the community. In this case, when Peter tells his story, 
those who are listening accept what he's saying, and they recognize that God has given the Spirit to the Gentiles, and they recognize what God is doing here. But it's um, it's not just Peter uh, acting on his own. There's this private experience expands out and becomes a communal moment. Do you take the opposition at the start of chapter eleven to be um, the failure to circumcise the Gentiles? Is is that what the issue is? Because it doesn't seem to be um, objection to the fact that the Gentiles have received the word of God in verse one, um, but the fact that Peter has gone in to eat with them and yet they're uncircumcised is is that how you read it mm. so it, the the uh, complaint would be that after the fact after they have heard the word believed then they should be circumcised and the fact that he failed to do that i get i was thinking it's the way it's worded in verse 3 seems to be from the moment he enters the house of uncircumcised and shares a meal with them then he's already somehow in violation you entered the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uh, that doesn't sound like it's a failure to circumcise after the after the event, but uh, an association with circ- uncircumcised people. Right. So m- maybe then the force of Peter's term in verse four, um, he explained it to them in order. Is that he, he wants them to understand the sequence of events which led him to be there, rather than him taking the initiative and going in and sort of unprompted, having fellowship with uncircumcised Gentiles. Oh, great, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that does seem to be the role that it's playing, the, his recounting of that vision is playing here. It's showing it's showing them that he had, uh, that he was doing this at God's direction. A, a lot of uh, the first 18 verses of chapter 11 are repeating things that we already learned in chapter 10, but I think the, the important point is the effect it has on the brothers in Jerusalem. In verse 18, I've already quoted that they quiet down, they accept what Peter is saying, and they glorify God, and they recognize that he's granted Gentiles repentance that leads to life. That's a phrasing that we find in the, at the end of Luke, Luke 24, when Jesus summarizes the message of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, he um, uh, talks about it not only as being fulfilled in his uh, suffering and his glory, but also in the preaching of repentance to the Gentiles. Uh, and uh, so there's this correlation between what the Spirit confirms by coming on Cornelius in his house and what the Scriptures had earlier predicted. The Scriptures, as taught by Jesus, had predicted that this very thing was going to happen. Yeah, it's an interesting use of the word of the Lord in verse 16, isn't it? It is the word of the Lord in the sense that it's what Jesus said, but it's also the word of the Lord in the sense that it has that weight of Scripture. So well, this is some of this is private and experiential. It, it is grounded in something very concrete at the same time. Mm. The fact that this is all driven by um, God's power and purpose, I think, is underlined here again, particularly in verse seventeen. God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I should stand in? I could stand in God's way. Um, maybe draws our mind back to the question in the council: um, if this is of God. Can you successfully oppose it? Um, but that emphasis upon God's activity in all of this mission, this is not a human-driven mission, but throughout it has been the Holy Spirit acting. And Peter finds himself very much as someone who's witnessing things happening that he can't initially understand. He's being 
scent and yet it's very much the spirit that has gone ahead of him. He's prepared the ground. He's already um, spoken to Cornelius and the spirit then is given, falls upon the Gentiles. And at that point, everything that Peter's doing is just responding to what God has already done. And the question is, is he going to be obedient and um, respond or is he going to be disobedient and resist? Um, this is not the church that's pioneering this mission. It's mm -hmm. God himself. I think that raises some practical challenges. Uh, I think of a couple of scenarios in the, in the contemporary church where this question comes up. Pentecostalism is one of the obvious ones. You have uh, traditional Protestants, some Catholics who would say, this can't be the, the, the same kind of work of the Spirit you had in the first century because that was specifically for the first century and that has ceased. And others would say, well, you know, how can we oppose God? Because this is what God is doing. So how do we navigate that dilemma with regard to Pentecostalism and charismatic Christianity? And then I think think also of uh, you have progressive kind of movements within the church that make the same kind of argument that the Spirit is now leading the church into tolerance of various forms of sexuality that it didn't tolerate in the past. But that's that's just the Spirit's prompting that's leading us in that direction. So you can see that there's a kind of an analogy in the logic of the argument here. But how would you respond to those kinds of uh, those uses of this this kind of argument? I mean, initially, you can already see a number of ways that the um, Peter's argument presupposes some sort of conditions or criteria for judging the truth of a particular work. So there is the touchstone of their initial experience of the Spirit at Pentecost. Um, it happened to the Gentiles as it had happened to them at the beginning. Then there's the continuity of the, the message that this goes all the way through from John the Baptist. And there is continuity and consistency. Um, beyond that, there are the various different witnesses um, and the bringing together of witnesses to bear witness to a common truth, I think, is important. This is not just one mm -hmm. party. Um, it's a body of people bearing witness to the same thing. And then, of course, there's the witness of the prophets, that this is fulfilling what the word of the Lord had declared earlier on. And so the marshalling of scriptural evidence and proof and the voice of scripture as that which is active in the situation, I think, provides us with a variety of different ways in which these things can be tested mm -hmm. and proved. Yeah, yeah that, that, or that theme of um, uh, kind of confirmatory witness just does seem to be quite significant throughout Acts, doesn't it? There is, I guess, as, as we've thought, the incident with Saul and Ananias where they each have sort of part of a vision, and it, it's the same uh, here in chapters 10, and 11, or we could even think of Galatians, where sort of Paul is uh, speaks to uh, the people at Jerusalem and, and sort of says, you know, they, they added nothing to my gospel. So independently, um, they had arrived at this consistent revelation. And um, that, that then seems to be the principle that there's this mutual agreement and to kind of use a, uh, a spiritual experience as something that then galvanizes two completely different. Um, yeah. viewpoints doesn't doesn't seem to be what's going on here at all. Oh, very good points. In verse nineteen, we we change scene again. We had uh, had spent a chapter and a half with Peter, 
And uh, now we move back to Paul in the last part of chapter 11. Uh, but uh, more uh, more directly, the, the uh, verse 19 begins with a, a reference back to the, the dispersal, the diaspora of the believers who are being pursued or persecuted after the stoning of Stephen. Uh, when that happened initially, we followed Philip for a while, and Philip goes to Samaria. So the, the church begins to expand outside of Judea and Jerusalem because of the persecution. Now it's gone out to a, a Gentile household with Peter. But meanwhile, there's still the dispersal is still going on, and some of those are making their way to, to uh, Antioch, which is going to be the initial base of the Gentile mission of Paul and Barnabas. So the persecution of Stephen and the, the martyrdom of Stephen is the spark that eventually leads to the establishment of a mission to the Gentiles. As you're following, following the dispersal of these people, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a movement to Antioch. So it's the it's the death of the first martyr that is the uh, initiative for the for the mission for the expansion of the church's mission. The sending of Barnabas to Antioch and his report uh, again we're seeing the importance given to witnessing the work of God in others and the joy that that causes. I think that's a common theme in Paul's letters. But here Barnabas's report about the church in Antioch gives great joy to the believers in Jerusalem, because they see the grace of God spread throughout the world, the way that God is working in these different situations. And just as with the hearing of the news of the gospel going to the Gentiles, there's a cause of encouragement in seeing the extension of the work of Christ. And that those reports that are going to and from the churches, um, it's not just teaching, it's also the witness bearing to what God is doing in all these different situations around the empire that the gospel is not being mm. constrained but god's word is going forth and it's conquering in these different locations yeah. i think it's significant that the chapter ends with a reference to the collection of uh, relief from among the gentile believers to the churches and the brothers in judea that's going to be a major concern of paul's missionary work uh, you, you're binding together Jews and Gentiles uh, in this very practical way of a contribution to to those who are harmed by the famine. But in, in terms of the literary sequence here, uh, we've just had a, a kind of Pentecostal event at the end of chapter 10. The Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household. And uh, in the following chapter, we have a sharing of goods. It's not in the same location, but we still have a sharing of goods and uh, that's in 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 the uh, uh, in the literary sequence of the book, which reminds us of what's happening in, in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four. As soon as the Spirit falls in Jerusalem, you have believers who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to table fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and also sharing uh, their goods with one another. Chapter four talks about people are willing to sell their homes and property in order to support those who are in need. And so when the Spirit falls, the Spirit is a common possession of the church, and the Spirit inspires this kind of concern for the common good of the whole body. Now that whole body, because it's expanded and grown, it's not just other believers in Jerusalem, other believers in one town, one city, but now it's a, a believers from Antioch and Jerusalem that are bound together by the Spirit and by this concern for the common good expressed very concretely in this collection. It seems significant that part of the driver of chapters 10 and 11 is, is 
food and table fellowship. And we can think of the gospel going out to Gentiles uh, almost in terms of food. We can think of Jesus's uh, interaction with the Syrophoenician uh, lady who talks about picking up crumbs from under the table. And then it's interesting that I guess the Jews have, as it were, shared that food, that spiritual food and nourishment with the Gentiles. And now famine arises and uh, the, the action is reciprocated, I guess, and these Gentile believers then start to share literal physical food back with their brethren in Judea. And, and so um, it's another um, act which, although it would have been a, a difficulty and a hardship, but it's almost an enforced um, bond and interdependence between Jew and Gentile here. And Joseph, or Barnabas, is the one who's going to provide relief in bread. Um, he goes down after the famine, um, or in association with the famine. Um, we can maybe think back to Genesis chapter 12, Abraham going down into Egypt, or the story of Joseph and Jacob going down into Egypt. That is um, something that bookends chapter 12, because we have the account of their return at the end of chapter 12. No mention to them in the about them in the interim, but that mission to um, collect for the Gentiles seems to be such an important part of Paul's calling. Um, I think that Galatians chapter 2 and the description of the meeting with Paul and the lead, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, refers to what happens during this period. But it's a time at which they ask him to take special concern for the poor, which he is eager to do. And it seems that that's not just the poor in general, it's the poor saints in Jerusalem. And one of the things that he's expressing within his mission, and he returns to this subject again and again within his letters, um, final chapter of Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9 of um, 2 Corinthians, um, various points, he mentions it in Galatians, um, it's in Romans 15, um, various other parts of his um, letters. This is such an important theme for him because it's the expression, among other things, of the bringing in of the riches of the Gentiles, the riches of the nations into, into Israel. But also it is this new form of relief as the um, riches of Egypt gave relief to Israel at the time of Joseph. There's another provision at the time of famine being given by the nations. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.